Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Guthrie-Weissman, the Editor-in-Chief of Modern Retail. And this week, I'm really excited. We have Jeremy Kai. He's the founder and CEO of Italic, which is just a fascinating company. Uh, you could call it a brand. You could call it a retailer. I'm sure Jeremy has a better description for how it is. But for those who are on the customer-facing side, um, you're able to buy kind of branded uh, luxury goods directly from the warehouse. Um, it's a really fascinating uh, company that has gone through a series of of different, I guess, business models over the last few months, uh, or fa- last few years, I should say. But Jeremy, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. It's uh, It's great to be back. Absolutely, yeah. So first, uh, why don't you just give a little bit of background? You guys have been launched for a few years. You launched in 2018, that's right? Yep, that's right. So Italic is a premium brand. Uh, we connect consumers directly with high-end manufacturers around the world. Um, and our spiel is, uh, we, we like to call it luxury without labels. Um, we oftentimes can find you know, really great products made by really great manufacturers, but because we disintermediated the final, I guess, the value, uh, the final partner in the supply chain being the brand, um, we can offer those products at equivalent qualities um, for a whole lot less, typically 50 to 75% um, lower than comparable brands do um, using the same manufacturers. Got it. I want to ask a question about that because you use the word that you, you describe yourself as a brand. I was sort of fumbled through my explanation at the beginning and I li- was listening to older um, interviews with you and you focused a lot on the relationship with the manufacturer. So what? how do you think about that? your positioning as a company in terms of being a brand or an intermediary of some sort, I guess? Yeah, you know, uh, this is a uh, an interesting one, which I think we've gone through a lot of evolutions of this over the years, and and by no means have we, you know, really cracked the code. To be quite transparent with you, um, I think the reality is consumers see us as a brand. Um, you know, we we try to put many different spins on it. You know, we we called ourselves a marketplace. We 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 called it a platform. You know, there, there's a lot of different things, and and you know, oftentimes to the investor community or to our, our customers, you know, for all intents and purposes, we we are a brand because they don't really see or or need to see what goes on underneath the hood. Underneath the hood, we operate more of a managed marketplace model. Uh, we go to these high end manufacturers, and we oftentimes um, partner with them directly, not in a traditional direct to consumer or legacy brand relationship where you know we buy inventory and then we sell it at a markup, and the manufacturer takes home. A pretty razor thin margin. Um, instead, the, the the difference is they treat us as a partner. We treat them as a partner. They have inventory risk, um, which is almost unheard of in in uh, the retail industry, at least. And that's really the the main quirk about it. Um, and their incentive is they're able to increase yield on their existing production capacity because we're essentially their direct to consumer arm. Does a consumer know about that or care about that? I think we've realized, you know, we, we can talk about it all day, but the reality is like, hey, I want nice stuff and I want it at a good price. And like, that's really where uh, the customer thinks about the relationship. I think, um, you know, over the years, I think we've also realized, hey, like this is unique to Italic in, in many ways. Um, and I think it, it's one of our strongest competitive advantages. It's why we can offer such a wide range of products from you know, beauty and home and, and apparel and accessory where most brands would oftentimes you know, take many, many years to get there or fixate on, on one product category for, for many years. Um, we don't want to be really pigeonholed into a single category. You know, we launched with handbags and and I would say today, like none of our customers think of us as a handbag company. Um, uh, but on the flip side, you know, the financial business innovation is, is, is pretty compelling. But um, to be fair, you know, uh, if, if you are, let's say, uh, a really large retailer or a really large brand, you probably have pretty 
aggressive payment terms with your vendors as well, whether they're brands or manufacturers. You know, um, I, I've heard uh, things like Net90, Net120, you know, oftentimes even beyond that, which um, as a manufacturer, it's, it's, it's not great uh, because you're not getting that cash flow right away. But um, on the flip side, like from a inventory turnover or, or business model, you know, they're essentially achieving like a similar um, uh, outcome, um, but the, cu- the customer still thinks of them as a brand. So I think we've, you know, we thought about it in many different ways. I think the reality is like we've come to terms with, hey, our customers think of us as a brand. Um, we should not try to shy away from that. Anytime we've tried to get too clever or cutesy with the positioning, membership, marketplace, you know, you, you name it, um, I think it's confusing. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I, I think um, for us at least, uh, we're, we're finally kind of stepping in and, and owning that, um, that, that uh, I guess, uh, responsibility of delivering a, a brand value. Got it. There's so much I want to dig in there. But first I want to, and this will help set the context for some of the history, but I want to talk more now because you've grown and people know what italic is for the most part. And so it's definitely definitely different than it was a few years ago. But A, how how difficult was it getting your foot in the door with the manufacturers at the beginning, uh, given that you're talking about a very different model than they've probably ever done before? And B, today, are you finding more manufacturers are talking to each other and saying, hey, it's easier for them to, to understand how the business works and want to work with you? I think when we got started, we thought that it would be a really big challenge to get in the door. You know, most of these manufacturers that we're talking about, we're, they're not mom and pop, like small, um, you know, artisanal shops. Um, uh, they're, they're pretty large scale or mid-sized uh, finance, you know, fa- factories and, and manufacturing groups. So, um, you know, I think to, to them, like we thought, hey, we're basically telling you make stuff for us. And unlike every single client in your entire history, we're not going to pay you for the stuff that you make for us. So we thought it'd be pretty challenging. And, and the reality is like, yeah, it, it was pretty hard to, you know, get a foothold of, of um, uh, with our initial manufacturers. I think the, the two things that uh, we noticed was one, um, this is actually not necessarily an uncommon desire. You know, I come from a manufacturing family. Um, we have a lot of I guess friends and in, in, in the network, and um, a lot of these companies are generational businesses. So, come the second generation or third generation, a lot of these kids, you know, are, are adults by now, grew up with the internet. They, they've seen the rise of e-commerce. Um, they've seen the rise of the the first batch of direct to consumer brands. And I think to a lot of them, there's this desire to go direct to consumer. And um, I think as a manufacturer, you know, you, you have to kind of also <laughs> assess your own competencies and be realistic. We've probably toured about. I want to say like 1,200 factories or, or something like that by now. Um, uh, and only two I have ever seen um, have a legitimate, uh, you know, brand arm of, of their own that is successful in the Western market. It, it's And a lot of them have tried. So, you know, you go on Amazon. Who is it? And you're going, um, one of them is this uh, brand that that sells on ShopUp and a couple other retailers called Ash. It's a, it's a really cool, like... Um, footwear company and, and they produce for you know all sorts of other brands as well um very very large brands um but they've been able to kind of build it up you know i i i can confidently say that's one of the only <laughs> um cases where i've seen that happen many many other like the 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 the, the norm is is hey this like italic works because we do everything else and you just have to make the product just like before. So um, I, I think, uh, you know, over time, the value proposition has gotten better, mainly because we have proof points. We can show like, hey, we drive volume in these categories. I think the two things that we, we've come to terms with is one, we don't really, uh, we, we can't work with every single category because we are a brand. And despite the manufacturer being like world-class, willing to go, 
you know, we, we tried selling, just to give you a sense, like we tried selling camping equipment last year next to jewelry, next to beauty. And you can imagine like if you're a marketplace, yeah, that can make sense if you're Etsy or, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're um, Amazon, like very natural, but to a customer who comes to our site and browses and, and wants the italic experience, camping doesn't really fit there. So um, we've had to intentionally kind of stay away from certain categories. Do we want to still work in those categories one day? Yes, but probably not in the same you know, way that we, we tried to in the past, which is just like sticking manufacturers who, we, who fit the bill you know, onto the platform. And then I think on the second front, you know, um, the trade wars and, and tariffs and, and you know, everything that I guess investors and the business community thought would hurt the value proposition actually really strengthened it, which was surprising to me because I, I thought it would be the opposite. Um, namely, because many, as a manufacturer, you really only have two ways of making more money than you currently do. One is expanding your business with your existing clients, who oftentimes will require lower prices. Um, or two, uh, you go and get new clients, which in this day and age is pretty difficult. So um, I think to a lot of the manufacturers, especially when the trade wars happen, like hey, you lost a client, you need to fill excess production capacity. Otherwise, you have to let go of employees, you have to you know, shed space, you have to shed equipment, so on and so forth. So I think to many of them, value propositions like Italic um, essentially guarantee, give, give them a way to control their own destiny, if, if that makes sense. It does. I want to dig into some of that. Uh, so you were talking about when the product expansion with the, the camping did not work. Um, can, you, can you just go a little bit more into how you've thought about product expansion and what fits with the branding that is italic is it do you have i guess for lack of a better word like a a vision board or like something of where you see it going in terms of the new categories or is it brought to you by manufacturers who say i make this i feel like this might work and we we have excess capacity for this How, how does that work yeah, it used to be a lot more of a pull function, namely because we thought of ourselves as a marketplace. We thought the customer thought of us as a marketplace. So we thought, hey, the logical conclusion of the flywheel is the more products we have, the more customers we can attract. Long tail thesis, you know, more customers we have, the more leverage we have to go get new manufacturers on board and the cycle repeats. Um, in reality, you know, uh, brands stand for kind of a stamp of um consistency uh, across a certain, you know, lifestyle or product category. Um, uh, You know, I I think for us, at least, um, we realized, hey, uh, we sold camping stuff. Like, it actually sold through. It did fine. Um, But if you've just had a common sense approach and you looked at the site, it was not merchandised <laughs> effectively. (laughs) Um, And uh, and I think we, this year, at least, we've been really slimming that down. We, We really have... Uh, a couple areas of, of focus. Uh, one is, is women's uh, clothing and accessories. It goes without saying, Italic's value proposition does extraordinarily well there because fashion markups are tremendously, um, you know, egregious sometimes in, in, in luxury. Um, uh, secondly, is men's, so same same exact thing. Third is is home, specifically bed, bath, and kitchen. Um, uh, we also have uh, jewelry. We have beauty. Um, we have. Uh, uh, pets and travel, um, but really, like beyond that, we're not hoping to kind of expand. And each of those like categories slash subcategories that we, we just mentioned are each like a billion dollar, you know, m- many times of a uh, billion dollar business. So um, I, I think for us, at least, like we we've realized curation is is really really important to the value proposition. We can't we just simply expand rapidly for the sake of expanding supply because there's also real, you know, inventory risk. Even though we don't really 
take possession oftentimes um, of inventory the manufacturers do. And if we don't sell through that on our platform, you know, there's, they don't really have, this is the whole point, right? We're the only option. So uh, we, we do have a, a tremendous amount of responsibility in terms of our agreement with our, our manufacturing partners. So, um, you know, in, in the future, I, I think, um, does that talc model work in, in other categories? Without a doubt. Um, uh, all of those, I, I think, are great fits for the value proposition of luxury without labels today. Um, but that doesn't mean that someone or us, frankly, couldn't do the same in, in other vectors as well. Um, but I think we'd have to be a lot more disciplined around our approach. Um, and, and we can't just simply assume we put out a product and our customers will you know, eat it up. Um, we had a, a couple of years of that, thankfully, but um, but I think uh, you know um, we, we, we've kind of saturated, I would say, the category expansion, and now we want to go deep in, in each of those categories. How do you, when you do expand into a new category, which I understand it probably isn't happening anytime soon, what what do you tell the manufacturers in terms of how much inventory to make, given that there is risk in it? Do you like is that is that a big data analysis crunch, or do you have a sense like this is probably going to sell through? Do are they all the same, or do different products you think are going to do a different type of sell through? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's definitely a blend of art and science. And I, I think to, to your earlier question, at least, like it was a pull function in terms of, hey, let's see what we have in the market and pull out what we think would do well in, in our marketplace. And like to that point, um, it's very data driven. It's very engineering heavy. Um, we would have um, a lot more of an engineering focus than I would say your average direct-to-consumer brand. Not that that's a good thing, by the way. Um, in, in many ways, I wish we didn't have to do that. But, you know, it's just the challenge of the model we operate now, because we've simplified it and kind of re, um, uh, refactored back into a brand focus, um, it's now more of a, pull, a push function, which is, hey, this is what we're seeing in the market. So traditional merchandising, right? Um, uh, this is, you know, um, the the styles we think would do well. What are you seeing in your other clients? You know, what are you seeing in your markets? They're the experts, not us, really. Um, or I guess it goes two ways. And uh, and um, the combination of the two, I think, we found to be really powerful because it won. Uh, concentrates the assortment into products that we can actually put a lot of more oomph or, or product marketing behind um, and launch it versus just like drop it on the marketplace, see how it does. Um, and then I think on, on, on uh, the question that you, you asked around inventory, um, you know, it, it's a uh, very case by case. It's art and science. Um, in, in new categories, we start small uh, and then we kind of scale from there. Our fulfillment network and our engineering and data um, pipelines have, have gotten, I would say, uh, a lot stronger over the past um, year, um, namely in terms of we, we. I guess underneath the hood, this is why you can probably tell from me, <laughs> like I'm not your cool like New York founder who like. <laughs> I'm. You seem has, fine. You seem pretty cool. Like. <laughs> <laughs> you know, our, our our strength really is in in um, kind of the 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 business side. So <laughs> it sounds so bad to say that, but um, but really, like we've built a pretty strong supply chain orchestration platform and. You know, there's this concept of a compound startup in, in technology. It's basically many startups built into one. We've basically had to build our own version of Shopify, our own version of you know a returns platform, our own fulfillment network, our own you know so on and so forth. But the advantages of rolling your own solution oftentimes is that it's super super customized for your use case. And in our case, what we want to do is tell a manufacturer make this style because of these signals, um, get it uh, you know make it in this quantity because of these sell throughs. Um, get it to this warehouse and then get it by this date and we can take care of the rest and, you know, we'll replenish it and make sure that we don't run out of stock, you know, on a faster and faster cadence. Um, are we 
perfect at that, but definitely not. Uh, we, we, we've had a lot of stock challenges as, as, as many, uh, companies, but I think our fulfillment network, um, now is, is a lot more resilient. So we can actually replenish faster and fulfill faster. So, um, I think, you know, uh, to, to the inventory side, at least we've just gotten smarter, but, um, but it, you know, remains a challenge, um, for, for net new categories of which we don't really have many. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. I want to go into the overall model of things because you you launched as anyone could buy. Then in August 2020, correct me if I'm wrong, you you went um, to be membership only. And then late last year, you still have the membership, but it's not uh, a requirement anymore. Is that correct? Yep, that's exactly right. All right. And so first, what led you, let's, let's go back to August 2020, it's the pandemic. Was that just because of sales velocity you saw? There was so much... Ha- demand for e-commerce, you re- realized you could add a membership model and it would likely go bananas? Well, you know, I don't like to say we kicked off a trend, but I, I feel like we did in, in some ways um, because we, we look at a lot of the more premium competitors now and and um, you see a lot of them offer, you know, some version of a, of a membership. You know, you have the RH model, you have the Jenny Kane model and, you know, um, many, many different Fabletics, you know, many different iterations of that. Um, and many of them, I think, are, are quite successful. I, I think for us, the, the root of it was a personal um, uh, uh, gut decision, which was to say, and it was rooted in like data and, and so on and so forth um, and proven by that. But really it was, hey, we are selling uh, products that um, are close to prices of direct consumer brands, but um, we're comping to these higher and premium legacy brands that most people don't shop online for. Um, so if we're 20% less than an XYZ brand, um, that's often not enough to sway a customer over who, uh, from a brand who spent all of their time and money and, and attention towards like the single category, single story, um, and it has to be a whole lot more dramatic. Um, how do we do that in retail? Well, uh, you can lower your margins, which doesn't uh, work well as we've we've seen. Um, you can spend more on acquiring customers. Also, same classic New York direct-to-consumer playbook like crashes and burns pretty hard. Um, or we could try to you know take a little bit more of a radical approach. And in that case, which was the membership, um, and we knew going into it like, hey, this is basically betting the company the first time um, because we actively prevent people from shopping at our company. And like normally in direct-to-consumer or online, like. That's not a <laughs> something you want to do, um, but what that allowed us to do is capture the margin profile of the contribution margin that an average customer would, you know, transact over the course of the year upfront, which then allowed us to drop our prices to be a whole lot more dramatic um, than uh, than they were previously. So, to give you an example, like we sold a really really nice, um, you know, uh, leather jacket, um, uh, an equivalent one would. Easily clear a thousand dollars, but we were selling it for four fifty. If you look at our uh, direct-to-consumer counterparts who were selling leather jackets, maybe they're like five hundred, six hundred. But like, ah, you know, um, what gives Italic the right to be better than those brands? But if you change it to two fifty, or if you change it to two hundred, now, now that's a huge change. Where if you believe that the quality is somewhat equivalent, which I strongly do, um, and we can justify that with cost of goods. Um, you know, the membership starts becoming a lot more appealing to the customer side because the prices are dramatically lower. Um, now, I think the the two things that happened, of course, naturally, it's really hard to get someone to become a member, um, a paid subscriber. I mean, I'm sure you deal with that every day. It's tough. Um, but uh, but we saw the activity 
really, really strong. So we didn't want to lose the concept of a membership, but we knew at some point in time, hey, if we're a venture business and we want to grow, um, we owe it to ourselves to open the floodgates a little, again. Um, it's good for the manufacturers. It's good for um, our supply chain um, because the more volume we do, quite literally, you know, the, the cheaper uh, each unit gets, the cheaper our fulfillment orders get, you know, so on and so forth. So um, I think there came a time I'd say earlier, um, around Q1, Q2 uh, last year, where um, we got um, the economies of scale while maintaining those price points that allowed us to actually capture, you know, uh, margin on the products that we were selling. Historically, like we wouldn't have been able to capture that because of our volumes, but at that time, you know, it's a diminishing curve. It's just like a very large drop in the the short quantities, and then like over time, it diminishes. Um, but I think on on our side, we got to that point um, over the course of the the, the, the year prior um, that gave us the confidence. Okay, we can actually open this up, earn money on the products we sell, um, drive more volume to our manufacturers by opening the the, the customer base. Um, the the customer quality will drop for sure, but we can still offer the membership as a way to kind of retain and and um, incentivize our, our most loyal customers. But access isn't it. We need to kind of give a whole lot more than that. So we actually don't really make money on our membership right now, to be honest with you. Um, really? Uh, uh, no, no, definitely not. But um, uh, but those customers are amazingly loyal, like transact way more and way more heavily than um, a normal direct-to-consumer brand, five, six, seven, eight times. We've seen people spend like thousands in, in, in a year, you know, um, uh, but the membership in that case, like, is a no-brainer. So, um, so, uh, so, yeah, I, I think there's power users, and like, that's really where the membership sings. Um, and it's a pretty sizable part of our, our customer base. But um, I think the marketplace allows a whole lot more people to try Italic first. Um, we had a TikTok go viral out of the blue, like this weekend. Uh, we're very—I'll be honest, like, we're not good at TikTok, but um, but it just happened. And the average customer there, like, hey, they're a lot younger. They're they're they've yeah. never heard of Italic. Could they afford a hundred, hundred twenty dollar, or eighty dollar membership to then buy more stuff? Like, no, I think that ninety nine point nine 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 percent of them would never have tried it. But because we now have this model, like, okay, we just got a, a gazillion um, impressions. We 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 converted a X amount of them, and now um, to the people who we can grow with, um, they actually we actually have a shot um, at earning the right to, to earning them as a member. So. Um, it's been a learning experience for sure. Um, I think the current blend is is a really strong um, one, which is open. Um, the, the prices are still aggressive, and the membership is is really compelling. If you t- uh, if you think you're going to shop at Italic um, more than one time, but um, but uh, but yeah, I guess the the question is, can we grow this thing now? Can you? Do you think you can? <laughs> well, I think <laughs> I would hope so. All, um, <laughs> there's this thing, you know. I I feel like I'm breaking a lot of like sanctimonious like rules of DTC right now, but there's this thing which is, the, well, he, he, everyone knows this, like the good days of DTC, at least for this decade, are for sure over. Um, venture money is kind of exiting. Um, you know, uh, we, we have a lot of these brands that like, try to scale super quickly. That playbook really hasn't panned out, both on the public markets as well as kind of the still privates. Um, not that any of those brands, like there's legitimate brand value that's created there for, for uh, w- without a doubt, but um, on the flip side, there's a reason why the brands that have existed to this day are successful. You know, they're decades old, they're um, generational, they, the, the luxury brands for sure, right? If anyone says they want to create a, you know, Louis Vuitton like overnight, there's absolutely no way to do that except being around for a hundred years. So I think for, for, for us and, and the rest of the ecosystem, the two things that are really important are one, um, okay, 
we have to grow, right? Like we raise money, we, we are not profitable, we, we need to grow. Um, but to do so in a much more measured way, making sure that the economics are there, um, not just solely relying on just like pumping dollars and brute force and growth. That's very clear to everyone, I, I would say. And if, if you disagree with that, I, I think you're going to be out of business soon. Um, and then I, I think on the, the the second front, you know, for Italic, like we have this really compelling um, supply chain orchestration data um, and engineering platform, which um, we actually believe could be extensible to other use cases. We'd prefer to keep it internal, but um, uh, and we don't see this being external anytime soon. But um, you know, there's other things that we can leverage to uh, grow faster than just like you know pumping dollars into Facebook ads and and uh, and hoping to recoup that because that 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 falls off pretty quickly. So um, so yeah, I, I think uh, you know. We're, we're definitely, we have a, we're actually doing like all things considered ever since the strategic shift into a more premium, uh, you know, simplified assortment and, and back to a brand that's worked. Like it's, it's, we've had our, we're, we're having our best year ever. And I think our, our customer um, loyalty and, and reviews, like it, it's shining through very clearly. Um, but uh you know, that means we're not going to be spending all of our money on, on acquisition. And I think that's true. Like, Last year, I think everyone got punch drunk on the, the 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 whole public markets, but I think at least for now, like things are a lot more reasonable. So we're taking it at a little bit of a slower pace. I wanted to ask you about sort of like the acquisition front of things. It sounds like you're taking a much more measured approach. It seems like you have a lot of things to say about like DTC culture, which are completely correct in terms of like it seems like it's just like a a big rise and then an instant fall, and then we do it all over again every two to three years, essentially. Yep, and so, like, right. um, uh, what, like, what have you, you know? What do you do? A lot of acquisition costs? Do you not? Are you just putting things on TikTok and hoping they work? And they did this past weekend. Sort of. How how is that? How is that all that working out for you now with this with this new regroup? You know, I I think um, on acquisition specifically, I would say. Uh, we actually turned off most of our paid acquisition earlier in the year. Um, you know, I- iOS changes notwithstanding, like that was going to happen regardless. And and I think it was mostly from the realization of, hey, our best customers and our most loyal customers and like the strongest quality comes from people who come through word of mouth and you can't pay for that uh, experience. And anytime you pay for that, all the metrics across the board start dropping, right? Um because it's 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 kind of forced growth, um, uh, and then I think on 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 the the social side and and just to give you that example, like we didn't our, our, we we didn't pay that person. In fact, we've never interacted with a person. They just like happened to be a fan, and like it was great. I mean, we very very appreciative of it. But it's also kind of like, hey, if we do right by our customers, like, um, and we have a, a healthy unit economic profile, um, uh, we can get ahead of that and and uh, and continue to grow. Um, our our I'll, I'll just give you this uh, little tidbit. Um, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to share it, but we uh, we cut our growth spend by five x from wow. March to April this year, and our revenue grew, and it's wow. continuing. So it's kind of like. What were we spending money on in the first place? Like we're either really bad at what we're doing, or um, you know the customer quality that we're able to track organically is um, uh, uh, is, is really good if we can do if we can do right by by the customer. So um, yeah, that was kind of a, a wake up call. Um, and and, I, and to any brand out there like who's listening, like give it a shot. I, I, it sounds crazy, but um, but uh, but for us at least, I, I think it was the right move. Well, I, I was ta- I've been talking with brands over the last few months, and I've I've heard more and more say we just completely turned off Facebook. They're just like, what's 
what's the point? Um, and it seems like they're not they're seeing a similar where maybe they saw a slight dip, but not really. And also it's you know made up for by the fact that they're not spending thousands on on the platform. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I think uh, last year in podcast, it's very hypocritical because I, I was saying like, hey, you can for sure figure out Facebook if it, a lot of people run away from it. And I still think that's actually true if for the right type of brand, you, performance marketing and direct, it, it's been around for like, yes, in the current manifestation, like a decade, but for all intents and purposes, like many, many years now through TV or programmatic and, and so on and so forth. Um, but I, I think the business has to make sense for that. Um, a, a common um, brand that a lot of people look to for growth is like Athletic Greens. If you can get those LTVs and you know retention to be that sticky and your margins, you know, it's green powder, like are that good? Yeah, you should be blowing all your money on on Facebook because uh, it's, <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. But I think in our case, like the 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 um, the business that we were operating, because we intentionally decreased our margins relative to our competitors, you know, uh, we 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 actually need to be uh, a bit more responsible there. Um, I wanted to ask just about when you made the shift late last year. W- what did you experience specifically on the subscriber front? Was it more a lot of churn where people like now I don't need to be uh, a member anymore? Or was it just the rate at which you would get new subscribers would go up? Or what What, what was the overall observation sound that it's been more than six months out, I think? I have been um, really pleasantly surprised. Uh, I, I thought, you know, uh, I, I thought anytime you do like a dramatic shift like this, whether it's going all in on a gated membership model or going towards a, a hybrid one where you're, you're, you're kind of giving away the product that was there for free, um, you expect a you know, a really negative sentiment. And, and, you know, there's definitely customers who uh, weren't happy and, and, you know, we, we tried to do whatever we could to, to make um, the experience better for them. But um, our retention rates are really, really good. Uh, I don't think I'm, I can share, but like they're, they're, they're um, much better than I thought and net everything. Like we've sizably increased, I think the, the scale of the membership uh, because uh, people could try it first, uh, essentially. We tried trials and like purchases without memberships, but I think it all felt a bit gimmicky versus just like, try it. If you like it, then it's a no brainer. Um, so, uh, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's the, 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 the retention and churn has been, um, much better than I thought. Wow. That's great. Um, so what, what are your, what are your major focuses on for the year? It seems that you're being hyper vigilant in terms of your, you're focusing on scale and growth and all that, but also trying to rein it in with a model that actually makes sense and is, ideally, you know, has the right economics behind it. What does that, what does that mean specifically for what Italic's going to do in the next 12 months? Yep. Um, it is very, very simple, actually. <laughs> it That's is, good. Uh, it's three things. One, um, revamp our product assortment and get it to a prestige level of quality and uh, a lot smaller, just to put it in uh, scale. We started the year thinking we were going to launch a thousand products We'll probably launch a hundred, um, so it's a gigantic, you know, change in, in how we're doing things. Um, two is is uh, significantly improve the customer experience. Um, when we replatformed onto a fully proprietary, you know, custom built um, end to end store and, and, and back end and, and port, what we call it portal, um, there were a lot of things that just did not go right. The customer experience is bad, you know, returns are bad. Even to this day, they're, they're still not optimal. So 
you know, we really want to get that back into like, hey, we want to be genuinely like best in class in your browsing, your saving, just like core ecom 101. Um, uh, and, and I think on both of those fronts, like the past six months, um, we've done a really good job on that and we just have to continue that. Um, and then I think the, the third one uh, is, is kind of what we talked about, right, is figuring out a, a path of growth into the future where, um, you know, we can continue to uh sizably grow the business without needing to solely rely on, you know, paid and, and that can manifest in many different ways. Um, uh, you know, oftentimes when people talk about word of mouth, like they think, oh, you can do that through, you know, like better packaging and, and, um, and referral programs and, and so on and so forth. But really at its core, like it's just delivering a really, really good first order experience and can continuing to do that again and again, once you get to the fifth order, like you got a lot of, we have a lot of leeway because when you think of italic, like generally it's a positive, you know, sentiment. And when you think to buy something expensive, okay, I might as well check if italic has that. So um, I think trying to figure out our, our marketing mix um, uh, and, and really cracking the code there is is is, uh, is the third priority, which I think um, we've started to make inroads into, but still a long way. Got it. Well, Jeremy, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Good seeing you. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and send this podcast over to a friend who you know would enjoy it. See you next week. 